The upcoming 2020 Tour de France is bound to go down in history as the first race held during a worldwide pandemic. Now, the race's history takes center stage in our upcoming Velo News Tour de France guide as we focus in on the last edition to be, of the race to be held during such a time of uncertainty. We focus in on the 1947 Tour de France, which was the first edition held after World War II and the first time the race was held after six years of Nazi occupation. We have interviews with four riders who are alive during that era, and they take us inside the race and the impact that it had on France as a whole. Now, that feature forms the cornerstone of our annual Tour de France guide, which again has the content that you need to follow along with the race. We have detailed profiles of all 21 stages, detailed analysis of all 22 teams, plus contenders, riders to watch, and an explanation of the jerseys. If you plan on watching the Tour de France this year, pick up your copy of the Velo News 2020 Tour de France guide at velopress.com. That's right, velopress.com. You can order yours today, and it will be there before the race starts. Okay, let's get on with the show. Uh, welcome back to the Vell News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a Tuesday morning. We have a jam-packed, very busy podcast today with lots and lots of content to take you inside what's going on in racing right now. Uh, pro cycling has returned. It returned this week uh, with three races, uh, three women's races in northern Spain, as well as the Vuelta a Burgos, which is going on as we speak, uh, men's race going on in northern Spain as well. We have, first up, an interview, well, a conversation with Andrew Hood, who is at the Vuelta a Burgos, and he's been talking with riders and directors about what it's like to be at this race amid the coronavirus pandemic, the safety precautions that are going on at the race, and, uh, you know, a scary scene in which uh, the Team Israel Startup Nation had to send a couple riders home because they were believed to have come into contact with a teammate of theirs who tested positive for the coronavirus. We're going to be following this race all week long on velonews.com because it's the first big men's race back. Um, then I link up with James Start and we continue our preview of the 2020 Tour de France and we have a pretty deep dive into the um, first half of the stages. That stage is one through 10 and we're going through it stage by stage, analyzing the route talking about, hey, is this a route for sprinters, breakaways, GC? How do we expect the stage to play out? We're taking a pretty deep, nerdy dive into stages one through 10. So if you plan on uh, watching the Tour de France and you want some analysis on the stages, uh, stay tuned for that. Then uh, second half of the show, uh, Betsy Welch and I had a great interview with Taylor Wiles of the Trek Segafredo team. Uh, Taylor was racing at these three Spanish races in northern Spain this past weekend. She talks all about um, her travel from the United States back to Europe amid the coronavirus precautions, what it was like to be at these races. Again, you know, these are the first races happening Um you know, they are going on during the pandemic and Taylor has an up close view of the safety precautions that the riders had to follow, what it was like when a couple of the teams pulled out of the races because they didn't feel safe and what she expects to see at Strada Bianca coming up. So again, busy podcast. We have Vuelta Burgos. Oh, we also have a grab with uh, Sepp Kuss, who's at the Vuelta Burgos. So Andrew Hood, Sepp Kuss, 
James Start, and then Taylor Wiles. Uh, thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. And, you know, guys and gals, it's going to be like this for the rest of the year. Just lots going on from the world of bike racing. And we're going to take you inside the races the best we know here on the Vel News Podcast. So thank you for listening. Okay, let's link up with Andrew Hood. Okay, now joining the pod is Andrew Hood from the town of Burgos. He just wrapped up watching the finish of stage one at the Tour of Burgos. And this is the first race back on uh, since the coronavirus. Uh, Hoodie, set the scene for people. I mean, you were at the start and finish of the race today. What's the look and feel like at this race? And how different is it from what you would normally see at a pro race? Well... That's very true. For, I have to put the little qualifier. I didn't quite make it to the finish. I got stuck kind of uh, at the bottom. So saw them go by. I was up on a Castillo at the top of the hill and uh, just kind of got caught in a traffic jam. Didn't make it quite to the top. So I'm not quite sure exactly how it was at the finish line today. But at the start, it certainly had a different look and feel, kind of. Um, the the signing area was right in the in the front of uh, the, the famous cathedral here in Burgos. And uh, that was all fenced off, all controlled. They had police counting the amount of people being allowed into this little plaza, this little area where the uh, sign-in was. Uh, you had to wear a face mask. You had to put hand sanitizer on. Very much controlled. And, uh, you know, it seemed like a, a pretty well-managed space. The riders were coming in all with face masks. They, uh, some of the riders even had uh, gloves on. Uh, we saw people doing temperature checks. Um, so a lot of those uh, protocols and measurements that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks are certainly in, to, in place. And then once uh, the team bus area where they traditionally just kind of line up, that was also taped off. Um, there were not a lot of uh, fans going back in there. It really wasn't completely closed off, but it just seemed like people were respecting the, the, the boundaries and, and not going in there as much. There were quite a few people gathering around the start area as it came through this kind of famous old archway and right in downtown Burgos. Once the Peloton rolled out, it seemed like it, you know, there's no one on, on the side of the road out in the middle of the Meseta when it's uh, 90 degrees outside, believe me. <laughs> what, uh, what was the feeling of the riders? I mean, you were able to speak to some riders, team directors, people inside the area. Um, what were how were they feeling about the overall safety of the race and the coronavirus precautions? Like, what what were people talking about? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I really didn't talk to anybody personally that was that was expressed any sort of fear or anxiety about racing. I mean, these guys are have been caged up inside for four, four or five months, four months, and so they won a race, and I think they've embraced that this is simply the new reality that the world that we're living in. And they feel like that uh, the teams and the organizers have done all they really can do to make it, I think, as safe as possible. Uh, I feel like that uh, a few people were mentioning that, you know, there's some uncertainty about when they're mixing with the larger public. You know, they were asking about the journalists, you know, for us to get our credentials, we had to do a COVID test. Uh, I had mine done a couple of days ago within 72 hours of arriving the race. And I don't know if you've had yours done yet, Fred. It's not a very pleasant experience. Let's put it that way. And uh, some of the uh, riders have already said they've done six, eight, ten, ten tests already between training camps and, and the, the first race here at the Burgos. But they are expressing some concern about, you know, they go into the hotel 
So they don't know what the staff has been going through there. They come to the race. There's some public, even though they're back far away, there's some fears. But I think it's all relative to where you are right now. The infection rate per 100,000, which is the standard really bearer of how they're measuring the risk. It's very low right here in the Burgos area, even though there are some other hot spots in Spain. So that's going to be the big question mark, really, I think, is is what the overall general health questions are that could really, I think, derail this for cycling right next. I think within the bubble, within the race, you get the feeling that people are just kind of getting their heads around it. Yeah. And I mean, we've followed the uh, online discussion of the last few days. There have been a number of stories written, um, really taking shots at the UCI's precautions for coronavirus and pointing out the shortcomings about how, you know, a lot of the rules on testing, et cetera, are being left up to the events and not necessarily being handed down on high about how the UCI's um, overall, you know, rules like 15 pages. You compare that to some of the mainstream sports, American sports, and it's like, you know, 100, 150 page rule book. And um, there's also been some, you know, last week we saw at the races in Spain when CCC Live pulled out of two races because they felt like the COVID-19 rules were not being followed by some of the other teams. It, it just seems like there's been a lot of concerns about the implementation of these rules. I mean, my question for you is, I mean, as a guy who's on the ground and, you know, you're at this race, do you feel safe? I mean, you've been following this pandemic since day one. How do you feel personally about being um, out and about at the race right now? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, this, the, the risk is there. I mean, as long as COVID's around and there's no vaccine and there's no herd immunity, it's going to be dangerous. You know, so where do you draw the line? Um, you know, personally, I, I've been wearing a face mask every time I've gone outside since June. And I think that's been the case for most people in Spain. Uh, you know, you wash your hands, you put the hand sanitizers on, you're doing the elbow bump at best. You know, I, I have noticed that some people seem to kind of forget uh, some of that social distancing. So, you know, I've had some people get close to me. I keep backing up. I said, whoa, whoa, Nelly, just keep it, keep it back, keep it back. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then today when, when I was doing interviews with writers and I had uh, my tape recorder on a, a selfie stick and kind of holding it out there, you know, keeping it safe for both myself and the writer. We don't want to try to do anything from our part to create any sort of problems. But, yeah, do you feel safe? I mean, I think we just have to realize there's going to be some risk and uh, I just hope that it never gets back to this communal kind of contagion where it requires everything to go back down into lockdown. That's that's going to be the thing that's going to ruin not only for cycling, but just everybody really, isn't it? What's the fan situation like there? Obviously not a ton of fans being allowed in or no fans being allowed into the start and finish area. But when you see fans alongside the road, I mean, are they bunched up the way you would normally see at a bike race? You see in masks, social distancing, or is it back to normal? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like I said, at the start and the rollout today, there were definitely fans kind of packed in. Um, by law in Spain, you got to wear a mask. But there were certainly people, uh, you know, it's not like the Tour de France where it's five deep. But it was in the rollout today, I certainly had people on both sides of me. Uh, I just did a little quick video grab and as they rolled past and got, that, got out of there. Uh, you know, people, I think in general, are respecting the social distancing, but you know, I think I posted a, on something on Twitter, you know, let's hope not that the curiosity, curiosity does not kill the cat because there were certainly some fans in there. So I think the bigger risk really is if regional and national health authorities start seeing this and fearing some sort of uh, risk of a larger kind of uh, spark of, of a new kind of contagion that, that they might, 
you know, either, I guess the first step would be just to ban the public. Uh, I think that there's a lot of planning going into this, and I think there's support from the local uh, health authorities as well as the government, of course, for a race like Burgos. Um, but, yeah, do you feel safe? I mean, do you feel safe crossing the road? You know, you got to look both ways, and uh, that's the same thing in COVID. It's just it's just the new reality, and if the, if the uh, rate of infection is as low as it is right now, where we are right now, I think it's, it's I think it is fairly safe. Well, we're already seeing teams taking, I guess you wouldn't say extreme precaution, but um, uh, oh, you know, heavy precautions around this. Um, you had a story on the site last night, we're recording this Tuesday night, and into today about Israel startup nation taking some extra precautions around uh, COVID. In that, um, you know, there's a rider on the team. Um, Jacob Goldstein, I believe, um, Omer Goldstein, 23-year-old Israeli rider. He is not on the Burgos roster, but he is on the team, and he recorded a positive test for COVID-19. Um, as it turns out, he had been spending some time in Girona with another rider. Um, that rider is, oh, what's his name? He's a young guy, Itamar Einhorn. And even though Itamar Einhorn recorded a negative test, the team decided to remove him from the race uh, the night before. And as we're recording this, uh, another rider, Alex Dowsett, did not start as well. This was a story that unfolded over the course of, what, 12 to 16 hours. Hoodie, take us inside the story of Israel Startup Nation deciding to pull some of its riders from this race. What was it like as this uh, story was unfolding at the event? Yeah, I think you did a, a good summary there, Fred, of what happened. Um, you know, the, the, this kind of reveals the, the gap in this 72-hour test requirement. Uh, going into Vuelta Burgos, every rider had to produce a negative COVID test to be allowed to start the race. So, But those tests are being taken up to 72 hours before the start of the race because part of the problem we're seeing is it's taking teams a while to get the tests take the test, get it sent to a lab, and get those results back. I mean, the results are available immediately with some sort of uh, uh, you know email. But it, it takes a courier usually 12 hours overnight uh, to get the actual sample from the person to, to, the, to the lab and get that test turned around. And that's kind of what we saw last week at the, at the Spanish races. So, you know, teams are doing the test. It's taking a little bit longer than some teams hope for. And a lot of times that's rubbing up against uh, some of the protocols that have been introduced. Because yesterday the rule was at uh, 6.30 local time, all riders had to produce that negative COVID test to be on the official start list. So what happened was, you're right, the other guy, Einhorn, was hanging around with Goldstein. Goldstein had tested positive. Einhorn had done his test. Einhorn had done his test, came into the race, had tested negative, but just the fact that he had been around the guy who had tested positive, there was some worry that there might have been some contagion. So what they did is they took Einhorn out of the race yesterday. And then this morning they were doing um, rastreo, they call it in Spanish. They were kind of just looking to see, tra uh, tr uh, tracing all the people that these people might have been in touch with. So they found that it was Mechanic, another uh, team, Soignier, and Alex Dowsett had also been close to this guy that there was a risk of some contagion. So they took both those guys out. And the team yesterday had done a whole other series of tests just to make sure that these guys were all still negative before starting the race. But the tests had not come back until after today's, today's race started. So that was the quandary. It's like, do you allow the team to start 
knowing that they had potentially a very minor risk of being exposed to COVID. So that, some of the undercurrents there kind of create some, reveal some of the cracks in this system. I mean, some people have suggested that teams should have pulled out of the race because the official results did not come back until after the race had started. They were negative, but what had happened? What would have happened had one of those guys pop positive, mm. and the race is unfolding? So that that's where this is all coming coming down. And there's some consternation among some people that were telling me that uh, there was a few people that did not like the way this unfolded. But at the same time, the team said it did what it could do to control the situation, and they pulled these guys out. And everything's turned out okay, but that kind of also reveals uh, some, of the, some of the risk here. Yeah, like you said, that um, reveals that the, you know from a timing perspective, there's the potential for something like this to go wrong, and maybe that's something that the teams and races need to re-examine after this. You know, um, hey, you know, if there's a scare like this. Maybe the safest, most cautious thing to do is just ask the team to leave. But that's difficult to do. I mean, these teams, you know, the whole reason that we're having these races right now is so that, you know, the teams can justify one of the one of the reasons is so the teams can justify their existence. And uh, they want to be here at the races more than anyone. And, you know, they're they're willing to make sacrifices like remove people like that. But um, maybe that. Yeah. Like you said, the safest thing to do is just for them to bug out. Um, what else are, you know, what are the other storylines you're going to be following throughout the week? You know, readers can go to velnews.com, find Andrew's coverage of the race. I mean, a lot of it is about the COVID-19 precautions and how teams and riders are adapting to it. But what else do you, what are some of the other storylines you expect to come out of this event? Yeah, just looking at it, you know, everyone's kind of sick and tired of talking about COVID from uh, the riders point of view. Some of the riders I was talking to are like going, we just want to race our bikes. You know, we, we feel like we're caged up inside of a, a box and they just, they're just ready to run and, and to race and, and be kind of, you know, free again and do what they're, they're paid to do. Um, they've been training, they've been trying to stay COVID free. So the chance for these guys to race, I mean, we saw the finish today, pretty exciting. And I think it's going to be a preview of what we can expect, not only this week, but, you know, once we get kicked into this weekend with Strada Bianca and then really kind of takes off with some of the Italian races going to these French stage races, I think we're going to see very aggressive racing almost every race we see because the stakes are so high. There's a feeling that uh, the house of cards could come tumbling down at any moment. Uh, there's also some anxiety of riders and all those things we've talked about over the last couple of months, you know, riders off contract, riders not really sure of their future, and they want to get some results and prove to the team that they're worth keeping around. So I think a lot of those things are going to add up to be pretty interesting uh, race dynamics. And even today we saw just first sprint, man, it's like things were going pretty crazy. Well, Andrew Hood, thanks so much for chiming in. You know, one of the riders you were able to catch up with was uh, American Sepp Kuss. So we're going to uh, let you get back to your evening there and then hear from Sepp from the Vuelta Burgos about uh, his thoughts on returning to racing. Here we are with uh, Sepp Kuss, the start of racing again, bro. Yeah. It's been a long time. How do yeah, you feel? Yeah. Oh, I feel good. Um, it, it feels a little strange to be back, but it also feels uh, pretty normal. I mean, I guess when, when you're used to racing, you uh, just fall into that rhythm. And yeah, it's, it's been a long time since we've we've done anything like this, but um, it, it feels pretty familiar aside from all the 
uh, safety measures and things like that. Now you guys are here with face mask. Uh, how do you feel at the race today, Seven? Do you feel like it's pretty safe and pretty well controlled? Yeah, I feel safe. I'm, I mean, at the hotel, every, everything's uh, really secure. Um, you know, we've the whole Peloton, we've, we've done, uh, you know, tests, at least two before the race. Uh, in our team, we've, we've done it before every training camp, things like that. So, um, I mean, that, that definitely mitigates a lot of the risk. So, um, yeah, I feel safe. So you passed, uh, you stayed in Spain during the quarantine. Were you in Andorra? You were yeah, up in Andorra. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So up, up there, it was total lockdown. You were just locked down three months. Yeah. How did it feel to get back on the bike again? Oh, it felt really good. Um, yeah, just gives you that much more motivation and appreciation of uh, just riding your bike. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I got through the, the time in, inside uh, well, so better than I thought actually. So um, yeah, it, it went by surprisingly fast. And what's the expectation inside the team bus? I mean, are you guys expecting the rest of the season to kind of go forward as planned or a few hiccups along the way? Uh, I, I think we, we have to take it uh, race by race. I mean, I think, I think everybody's in the same boat. Everybody wants to uh, start strong because, uh, yeah, even, even if we have a calendar, nothing's for sure. So, um, yeah, I, I think with, with these safety measures, it's, it's a big step. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. But I think uh, you, you have to stay optimistic, at least. For sure. I mean, a big news for you is you're on that uh, short list for the tour. Uh, what's that sensation for you like right now? Yeah, it's cool. I mean, um, I, I haven't thought too much about it, really. I mean, just just uh, going through the, the day-to-day. And um, yeah, we'll uh, see what it's like when we get there. But um, yeah, it's exciting. So for you, you'll do this race and then head to France, what, do the Dauphiné or some of those races? Yeah, yeah, I'll do the Dauphiné and then, um, yeah, then the Tour, so it'll be pretty busy. I mean, how's it feel for you? I mean, it's, uh, you made a pretty fast progression since you come to Europe. It must be pretty exciting for you. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty cool to be in that, that uh, the group that's going to the Tour, um, and it's, uh, it's a good route for me. It's a good route for the team. Um, but, uh, yeah, at, at the same time, it doesn't feel too strange just cause I guess, uh, I, I don't, uh, make it anything more than it, than it is or needs to be. So. Okay. Welcome back. James start to the podcast. Uh, Jim, you and I are going to take a deeper dive into the Tour de France stage, at least the first half of Tour de France stages last week. We took kind of like a 10,000-foot view, offered our takes and analysis on the route as a whole. Today, we're going to get granular. We're going to get real detailed on these first 10 stages because, you know, I feel like in the past, we got real used to like, you know, prologue, team time trials, some of these boring flat stages, um, you know, clogging up the first half of the Tour de France. This year is not that. I mean, when you look at the first half of this Years tour. I mean, you're just seeing mountains and hills and traps and opportunities for GC guys to lose time. I mean, that's what's standing out to me about this first half of the tour. When you look at some of these te- these first ten stages, what's what's standing out to you? Well, you know that uh, formula has been changing consistently over the last couple of years. Uh, it's actually, you know, over the last decade, ever since Christian Prudhomme took the race over from Jean- Jean-Marie Leblanc, Leblanc had this. You know, it was like lockstep formation. The first week is flat. The first week is flat. The first week is flat. And you had flat racing for seven to 10 days, you know, and it was kind of a yawner, but I kind of liked those because it, it was very relaxing too. Whereas here, uh, 
you know, every third, you know, Prudhomme says very clearly, he, you know, he came out of television and he's saying any more than two sprint days in a row is not possible. We will lose television audience and just people won't, won't stay, stay with us. So his formula has been make sure that by every third day at the very least, there's, there's some intensity and that can make for, you know, it can be a windy stage. It could be a, it could be a finishing on like the Mur de Bretagne, like a really, you know, steep uh, two kilometer climb, something that, but it adds a lot of, um, excitement to the race. It also adds a lot of tension. Also, often it adds some, uh, some logistical, uh, headaches. Um, and it makes for the, the whole week, the whole three weeks to be very intense for the riders and for all of us actually there. But it makes for exciting racing. And I think that's what we're seeing, uh, here once again, especially, you know, starting down in Nice. Uh, on the Côte d'Azur, it's, you know, it's impossible to have three days of flat racing. There's too many hills. Anybody that's ever been to Nice knows you, you come up out of the water and you go uphill. And that's what they're going to be doing. The first time I ever went to Nice, I rented a scooter and I went scooting around the city. I was in college and um, my scooter died because we went up some climb and it was, you, you know, like you said, there's no flat ground anywhere. You scoot around and all of a sudden you're on some like 20% climb coming out of town and, and it killed my scooter. So I think it might kill some of the uh, riders legs early. So we're going to go through these first 10 stages. We're going to offer up, you know, whether this is a GC breakaway or sprint day, who's our predicted winner. And then I, I don't know, I want to, maybe we have sort of a predicted synopsis of how the stage is going to play out. So if any of our listeners out there are like real sort of degenerate gamblers and you're wanting to place bets on some of the uh, European online sites beforehand, we can help you choose the the person that's going to lose you lots of money with our, our predicted winners. So let's start off stage one, um, August 29th, 2020, from Nice to Nice. It's 156 kilometers on the Tour de France's um, homepage, it lists it as a flat stage, but when you look at this profile, it's anything but flat. The stage tackles two 50-kilometer laps um, that go up this uh, Côte d'Aspremont climb, and then a 70-kilometer lap that uh, has even more climbs before a finish in Nice. I mean, James, when you look at this first profile, is this standing out as a GC breakaway or sprint day? Well, I, I, I think that when you really look at the, uh, the climbs, uh, most of the sprinters, most modern sprinters can get over these. Um, a guy like, you know, uh, Marcel Kittle back in the day might have struggled on this, but somebody like Caleb, you know, Ewan, he's, he can get over these climbs, in my opinion. Also, um, you know, when you consider the, the stages that are, the, you know, the stage to come, uh, I think the sprinters are going to really try to keep this together, uh, the sprint teams. And, and, and don't forget, you know, the last climb, uh, in Levin is, uh, you know, only 500 meters, uh, in altitude. And then they've got like a 30 kilometer downhill run in. So, you know, I think that the sprint teams have ample opportunity to, to bring back any breakaways that do try to get away. Um, and I think they're really going to be trying to do that because I think the next day is going to be much harder. Do you see this as more of like a lighter sprinter day, like a Sagan uh, Van Avermaet, or is this a traditional, you know, lead out train, Andre Greipel, Caleb Ewan, you know, some of the the heavier, more uh, specific sprinters? Um, you know, I'd probably put it in between. I don't think it's going to be a, I don't think it's a, one of those stages where only a handful of guys like say, say, um, Sagan or Michael Matthews, even if Michael's not in the race, but that kind of a guy. Yeah, is going to be able to get over it. Uh, I think that uh, more 
more sprinters will get over this than not get over it. So I do think that guys like, uh, I do think guys like Caleb can certainly get over this. And, um, as he showed last year, you know, he was, he was the, fa- the fastest sprinter, uh, in the race. And I wouldn't be surprised to see quite a few others there too. So I don't think it's going to be hard enough to, you know, I don't think it's hard enough where you're only going to have like, you're going to have like 30 or 50 guys at the finish, mm. um, which would then eliminate most of the sprinters outside of, you know, Sagan and one or two others. Um, but I think it's going to be, uh, so I, th- I think I just, uh, my, my sense is that, um, there's going to be surprises, you know, it's going to be hot. The first climbs, a lot of guys still don't have a lot of races in their legs. There's going to be some guys that just blow. Um, and some, some of them would be sprinters. You might have some other surprises. Who knows? But I think at the end of the day, a sprinter is going to win this, a pretty traditional sprinter. All right. Bunch sprint, stage one. Stage two, not going to happen for a bunch sprint. This is a mountain day. It is not an uphill finish, but there's enough big mountains that, um, you know, sprinters are going to be blown out the back. Anyone who hasn't done their homework or isn't going for the win, I would assume is going to be blown out the back. 187 kilometers, again, knees to knees, but this stage takes in uh, four good-sized climbs, starting off with a Cat 1 Col de la Comiane and then the Col de Turini right afterwards. So two big climbs right in succession, first half of the stage um, with then a Cat 2 and then a bump, the Col de Quatre Chemines, Chemines coming right before the descent into Yeah. I mean, uh, the the, these, these climbs we've been doing actually a lot in the last couple of years in Paris-Nice, the Col, mm. Col de la Comian and the Col de Chirini. Um, they are, uh, they're, they're good climbs. They're real climbs. Um, and if the tempo is hard, uh, it will show a lot of the riders. But it's, I think those last two climbs are going to be where the race happens. The Col des is a mythic climb in Paris-Nice. Depending on which, which way we come up it, I'm not sure. Uh, it can be very steep and really a leg breaker. And Cold to Catch the Mountain, although it's short, uh, you know, is right before the finish with just a straight downhill. So I see this very much as, um, you know, a handful of riders off the front. Could be, a, you know, the, the guys going for yellow at the end of this race have to be there. Um, I, you know, it could very, it could be somebody that is not going to be a yellow jersey to contender that gets just that little extra room to run. That, that, that picks it up. That's just, you know, a puncher or somebody like, say, uh, Lillian Kalmajan, for example. Um, but it could very well be, um, you know, a, a good day for Alaphilippe. Alaphilippe, Valverde, um, you know, those kinds of guys that can really punch it over these short climbs and have a good finishing sprint in a group of, say, three, four, five, six. Um, but uh, that, that's the kind of, you know, I, this is going to be really a, a puncher that's going to get over these things. Do you um, see any of the GC teams trying to eliminate some competition in this this early in the race, or do you still think the GC teams and riders will be predominantly looking at each other? I think that's a very good question. I think um, I wouldn't be surprised to see the big GC teams putting down a heavy tempo early in the race, just to see if they can catch anybody and get any of the uh, potential GC riders in trouble early. Um, these are also very narrow, tight roads often, very tricky descents, could be some crashes. A whole lot of things can happen here. I would not be surprised to see one or two riders already well down in the rankings, you know, one or two GC potential outsiders or, or favorites with a couple minutes, uh, lost at the end of the day. I, that's not a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. Um, especially this, you know, this early, this, this, this 
this first week of the tour, which you know, has a lot of difficulties, a lot of climbs so early on, um, is going to have surprises, especially uh, in the post-COVID-19 uh, world that we're living in. All right. On to stage three. This is more of a traditional, I mean, this is a quote-unquote flat stage for this year's tour. It is not flat if you look at the profile. There are one, two, three, four, five, five categorized climbs, a bunch of cat threes and cat fours. It's hilly, starts in Nice, 198K. It's a long day, finishes in Cisteron. But I see this as more of a traditional sprint stage. Hey, you got to throw a bone to the sprinters every now and again. I wouldn't be surprised to see the breakaway riders take some chances early. And there's this cat three, the Col de la Leckies, which comes, oh, Leck, 70Ks from the finish. I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of breakaway specialists roll the dice on that. But still, I see this as a Peter Sagan, um, you know, uh, Caleb Ewan. I see this as a pretty typical sprint stage. I would too. I wouldn't be surprised to see Thomas again giving it giving it a whole lot right here, huh? Yeah. Um, it could, you know, considering the day the considering that the day before was uh, probably had some surprises, uh, and the sprinters were out of it then. They could be extra hungry to try to keep it together here. Uh, that said, uh, you know, it could be a transition day, you know, where a breakaway does get away. But uh, from the cold elect down to the finish. It's almost a 70-kilometer downhill run, and so I think it's going to be hard, you know, for, for anybody to, uh, to you know, they're going to have to have a lot of time uh, before the summer, that, that summit to be able to stay away. On to stage four. Stage four is listed as a hilly day uh, on the Tour de France website. It is not hilly. This is, this is a tough day, and yep. it is the first summit finish, uphill finish of this year's Tour de France. We have uh, one, two, three, four, five categorized climbs, with the summit finish to the ski station at James, your pronunciation, please. Osier Merlet. Osier Merlet, from Cisteron to Osier Merlet, 157 kilometers. It is shorter, but, you know, I'm not familiar with this climb to Osier Merlet. What can you say about it? Do you see this as a chance for the GC boys to come out and play? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, for one, uh, it is one of the most uh, mythic or historic climbs in the tour's history, even though it it's not that they go over it all the time, like the Guilibier or the Isoir, but Orsi Merlet was a mythic stage in tour history. This is where, uh, in 1971, Luis Ocaña blew the doors open, dropped Merix, dropped Merix by eight minutes, uh, and, and a long solo breakaway. Uh, it was only about a four hour stage. It wasn't a long stage, but he attacked, I think, from the gun pretty much or very early, had Merix in trouble, took over the yellow jersey, and, you know, everybody thought that, you know, this was, is, you know, America's thought the tour was over. Uh, it was, you know, he, he had just eaten eight minutes. Uh, what happened later was that, you know, Okanya crashed, uh, in the Pyrenees and was out of the race. Uh, and he came back. It took him two years to come back and finally win the tour. But, um, Orsia Melet is just a, a historic, uh, climb. It's not that hard, but history has been made on this climb. So that is why the tour is going there, uh, this year to kind of give a little wink to history. Um, and also, because we're starting down down uh, in Nice, uh, all of a sudden we get to uh, you know touch the Southern Alps really quickly, and all of a sudden on stage four we're in the Alps. Um, you know it's about a what about a fifteen hundred uh, meter climb, and uh, it's going to be all uphill from for most of the last hundred k. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be you know plenty hard. Again, uh, fifteen hundred meters uphill finish. This is again I, I want to be saying this a lot. This is made for Alafidi. 
Yeah, um, yeah, it's seven point one k at six point seven percent. So it's not like so steep that someone can go bottom to top and drop everyone. I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the GC teams doing a hard tempo. So yeah, that could set it up for an Alpha Philippe versus Valverde sprint or something like that. I see. I see both of those guys having a very good tour this year. All right, on to stage five, another sprint day from Gap to Priva, 182.7 kilometers, predominantly downhill stage with with a few little ramps in here with looks like an uphill finish into Priva. How do you see this one playing out? Uh, I'd say uh, the spinners aren't here at the finish. They might as well pack their bags and go home. Um, yeah, it's a slow uphill finish, but, uh, you know, they, they've, they've been like, they've, they've been able to soft pedal for 160K before anything really happens here. Um, and again, the modern road sprinter can get up sometimes. Um, but, uh, we'll, you know, we'll see who's, who's, who's there really. Uh, again, uh, I don't see a guy like Caleb, uh, have any problems here. I don't like to see a guy like, uh, Sagan have any problems here. I don't really see a guy like Viviani having any problems here. Um, I see this and especially considering, the stage we had before and the stage we have the next day, I think the sprint team will do everything they possibly can in their powers to make this a sprint. All right. On to stage six, 190K, um, flat to lumpy 160K, followed by pretty big. And I say I think this is a pretty interesting finish where you have two cat threes that lead into the cat one uh, climb up. Mont Aguala. Uh, uh, Mount Mont Aguala, which... You know, the finish looks like a it's a it's an uphill finish, but it comes after the peak of this cat one. So the Tour de France has a pretty detailed um profile on its stage. And it looks like one of these where there's going to be a battle on a dramatic cat one, but then there's gonna be like fifteen K of slight uphill where there could I don't know, there could be a regroup. There the the group could stay away. I mean, to me this seems like this seems like a pretty um Creative stage where a lot of different stuff could happen. It's this Col de Luzetta, Col de la Luzetta, which is the Cat One climb, and then you have yeah, it's like fifteen to twenty k before the finish line. Yeah, um, it's going to be really, it's going to be really interesting. Um, you know, again on paper, if everybody's just straight, uh, you know, if all the favorites are there at the end, well, it's uh, it's it's hard to see anybody beating the. Alaphilippe or Valverde and just a big, you know, sprint of the best up a 1500 meter climb. However, um, you know, it could very easily be that once they get over the Moagual, uh, there's a guy, some of those guys are looking at each other and a guy like a Kalmajan or, or, uh, some other kind of, you know, more stage hunters, uh, can squeak away and, and make it up there. But, you know, if you look at the, the, the um, the, uh, you know, it's it's not a, it's not a, it's not an easy climb. Um, and what we saw, say in Perry Nice, was a guy like Nairo Quintana. He didn't need two thousand meters to make make the difference. You give him a thousand meter climb, he just dropped everybody. So um, you know, I, I'm talking a lot about Ali Philippe and the and the guys that can climb fifteen hundred meters easily and punch. But you know, some of these pure climbers, they you know, if, if there's a moment uh, where it's steep enough, they're just gone. They're by gone. 
Yeah, something that stands out to me about both stage four and stage six is that these are both days where guys could lose the Tour de France. I don't know if you're going to see anyone winning the Tour de France this early, but, you know, some contenders, hey, up, you have some bad legs on this climb up the Col de la Luzetta or up to Orsia Merletta. It's like, that's that could be it. You know, it's early and you could see some guys uh, erased from the board. Um, yeah, you're gonna. See, I think you're gonna surprise surprises all week long. Uh, guys, just you know, all of a sudden they're just like caught with it, literally with a rope around their neck. They just got their preparation a little wrong. Um, some other guys are just a little fresh. I don't know. Whatever. I just think there's gonna be some some surprises. Stage seven back to a breakaway versus sprint team stage from Mio to Lavar. How are my pronunciations on these? Mio, uh, Mio to La, uh, Lavo. I love Mio. It's right next to that very famous suspension bridge, um, right on the edge of the Massif Central. It's hilly territory. It's it's quite beautiful. Lavo is beautiful. Anything stand so, out about this stage? I mean, we have one, two, three categorized climbs, but we have a good solid 45K or so of flat into the finish. I think we're going to see some sunflowers. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good sunflower sprint day for me. Take a nap. Especially- <laughs> well, especially because looming the next day is stage eight, which is uh, right into the Pyrenees, smack in the face in the Pyrenees with three Cat 1 climbs, finishing off with uh, Porte de Ballet into the Col de Parasord, and then the fast um, finish down into Lodenville, which And it's only 139.5K. So again, short stage, mountains, um, I, this is reminiscent to me of 2018, the Pyrenean stage that finished to the Col de Portet. I mean, that was an uphill finish, but it was like pack all these climbs in back to back to back in 140K. Oh, that's that's the one where they had a staggered start. Yeah, the starting yeah, grid. But it didn't really matter. Quintana won, you know, just rode away from everybody, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, Luton Bay uh, is uh, just, just down at the bottom of the Perisur, which uh, – is not known as the hardest climb unless you finish uh, at that ski station, Perigude, which has that brutal last final ramp. Uh, that's also, and it's also well known because one of the, the epic James Bond movies was filmed there, some famous helicopter scene or something. I can't recall. But, um, you know, the, the Perry Sword is not the hardest climb, but the Porte de Balès is, and that's a very uh, hard, uh, long climb. So if any, obviously, if anybody wants to, to gun it uh, there, then you know you can break this race open uh, because that that is a almost a two thousand meter climb and it's a hard climb. I believe, if memory serves me, uh, Froome was in trouble that day uh, and kind of had to hide his game. Uh, this is you know uh, it was on the Col de Perisur and that's that, that finished on the ski station where Bardet ro- rolled away from everybody. Um, and uh, was that what in two thousand seventeen? I think. Uh, and you know, and all of a sudden Froome was you know gagging and people realize ah maybe if we'd attacked him a little earlier we could have done something um but they didn't uh but they might think you know again about this uh as as we hit it here we'll see it's you know it's going to be late august very early september we could still have some heat and gets really hot in the pyrenees it gets really cold too but it can be really hot yeah i mean my question is so this is already stage eight and this is you know this is quite obviously a gc day um but it's still pretty early in the tour. What are we going to learn from stage eight? Are we going to learn who's going to win the Tour de France on stage eight? Or do you feel like this is still a little too early for like the real big body blows to be thrown? Yeah, 
I, I, you know, what I, what I see happening here in this first week, when I look at all these climbs, I go, you know, somebody like Valverde or, or Alaphilippe, maybe Pinot, you know, uh, but one of those guys that just, you know, is lethal over, you know, 1500 meters and, and has, you know, a lot of punch can ride away from, from people at that level is just having a party and they're in yellow and they're, they're going to be going, all right, now what am I just going to live it? Like Alaphilippe did last year, wrote all out for as long as he could, even though he, he, you know, died a million deaths on the last day or two. Uh, or are they going to start going, well, it's too early and maybe let us let a breakaway get away and let somebody, uh, let somebody, uh, go out and grab the Jersey. I don't know. Um, there's so many scenarios that could get played off, but I, I could see a guy like a Valverde or, 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 or somebody just cleaning up in this first week and going, Hey, it doesn't matter if I get, if I, I come into Paris in yellow, um, you know, I can, you know, I can like put my stamp on this race forever. In the, you know, in the first 10 days and just own it. We head into stage nine, the, the uh, last stage before the first rest day, 154K from Po to Laron. Laron? Laron? Po to Laron. Laron. Again, it's the last day in the Pyrenees and the first third of the stage is fairly flat if rolling. And then... You know, cat one, cat three, cat three, cat one with a downhill and then flat finish into La Rue. I mean, this this is to somewhat reminiscent of that day in the Pyrenees last year where we saw Pino attacking Bernal. There's not an uphill finish, but when I when I look at this stage, I'm like, boy, whoever missed out on stage eight, you know, maybe someone had bad legs on stage eight. This is their opportunity to try and like do a daring raid and get some of that time back. For sure. And you have to remember, we're, we're in the heart of the Pyrenees here. The climbs are not that steep, are not that long, but they're steep. 8, 8.89% average. That's pretty steep by, uh, by Tour de France standards, huh? Uh, and the Col de Marie Blanc, uh, we don't go over that often, but it's a pretty hard climb. It's, it's not long, but it's hard. Um, will it be hard enough? Uh, I, I, you know, I see a small group coming, getting away there and coming into the finish myself. Uh, could easily be a breakaway. Yeah. Yeah, because the, you know, the Col de Marie Blanc, it looks, it's a very, it's a, it's a steep, tough climb, but you still have 19K from the summit of the climb to the finish and at least, you know, 10 to 12 of those K downhill and then another 7K or so flat. So I don't know if anyone's going to get crossed off today. You know, I think that. I mean, I mean, it's going to be an exciting race. When I saw this thing, uh, you know, unveiled in October, I was just like, "Wow, this is going to be really exciting." Uh, and I think it still will be. Uh, but at this point, it's hard to, you know, uh, days like this could, could could be a breakaway day too, you know. Um, and it depends what you know how things have settled down for the yellow jersey. Uh, do we actually have a real potential winner that's already in yellow, or is somebody like? I mean, he won't be in the race, but somebody like Thomas Vokler, you know, this would have been, he could have also had the yellow jersey for 10 days or something in a race like this, you know, if it's somebody like that, that that's going to change, that's going to dictate the, the, the way the race is, is run. Um, there's going to be, a, there could be a, at this point, last day in the mountains, uh, could be a last opportunity for guys to do some surprise, you know, have, have a surprise, but, um, it could be that the race is already kind of in its own, 
sort of um, scenario where the, the big GC riders have realized, okay, uh, positions are kind of set here until the second half of the tour, and and then they let a breakaway go, or they're happy to let somebody who, who's not going to win the tour uh, dictate the race, you know, control the race in yellow. We have a rest day um, the next day, so riders are down in the southwest coastal areas of France where they will be resting their legs and preparing first, for stage. First, What's that? Today. And we have a long drive to yeah. get to that rest. Uh, please be uh, aware. Um, and I think teams are going to be doing that too because I think they're going to want to avoid the the planes. But yeah. we'll see. Yeah. And then uh, and then we have this magnificent stage ten uh, to from one uh, of uh, France, France's uh, Atlantic islands to to another one, the Ile de Dolorion and the Ile de Ré. Both are splendid, and it's going to be. I mean, it's pancake flat. This is sprint, but it, if there's wind, it's going to be here. If there's going to be a big windy day on the tour that that you know breaks things apart, it's going to be here. Yeah, and it sounds like this is a first. They've never had a stage that started and finished on an offshore island. I mean, have you ever been down there, James? Like, what can you say about this section of coastline of uh, France? I've seen pictures. It looks very beautiful. Oh, it is. You know, I'll be I'll be eating oysters that night. I'll tell you that. And I've already got my hotel booked in Ile de Ré because I don't want to have to try to get off that island after the stage. Just going to camp out there. but I'm looking, I've been looking forward to this stage all year long. I think it's going to be just a stunning stage. It's going to be a lot of, you know, the start and the finish is just going to be gorgeous. And, um, and so I want to, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. And if there are crosswinds, uh, then you can see, you know, then you can see a lot of things happening on the GC. I mean, don't forget, like, remember when we, uh, finished a couple of years ago in, uh, was 2015 or 16 uh, in Zealand in the, in the, in the northern, uh, tip of, uh, Holland? You know, and that race just blew apart and Movistar got caught off the back, lost a couple of minutes. You know, um, this is going to be, you know, anybody who wants the GC can't just sit in and wait for the sprint. They're going to have to be sit in and be at the front all day long. And it could easily be crashes and it could be mayhem, but it's going to be a gorgeous stage. Yeah, expect some great helicopter images of causeways, riders going over causeway, the tour of causeway. Um, because yeah, this is going to be a very scenic one. Maybe not the one that you're going to like stay home and watch the entire stage, but I'd say expect a sprint, but yeah, definitely there's some trap areas in here where crosswinds and winding roads and coastal, uh, gusting winds could do it. So that's it. That's the first half of the tour. Thanks to James Stark for coming on to provide some expert analysis. Next week, we're going to wrap up stages 11 through 21. Same deal. Uh, GC stage flat. Breakaway, who's going to win um, to take you inside these stages? So, James, now the listeners are just going to have to wait around to see if our analysis of these stages was totally wrong. <laughs> well, um, a lot of uh, I, I have comfort knowing some of the best riders are, are the worst at predicting what actually happens in a race. So, I won't be alone. But, um, but I generally hold my own. You know, right. I, yeah. I'm not in it for the for the win of the uh, of the pronastique, but I'm I'm generally pretty solid. All right, James, we're gonna catch up with you next week. Thanks so much for coming on the pod. All right, it's always a pleasure.
The UCI Women's Pro Racing uh, season has restarted, and we are just a few days away from Strada Bianca. Our guest today to talk to us about the return back to racing is American Taylor Wiles. Taylor is joining us from a hotel room in Siena, Italy, where she's getting ready for Strada Bianca. Taylor, first of all, Strada Bianca in March can be a cold and rainy affair. Sounds like the opposite is true of what you're seeing in Siena right now. Set the scene for us in uh, in Siena. Yeah, it's definitely going to be different than, you know, the spring uh, normal Strada Bianca where two years ago it was probably the coldest I've ever been in my life. And it can often be pretty freezing when we start because we start before the men really early. And this year uh, it's going to be probably about 100 degrees. And they're also starting us like around noon. So, you know, just right in the heat of the day. <laughs> Yikes, bring your sunscreen. Um, so before we get to Strada Bianca Taylor, I want to talk about what the return back to racing has been like for you during this era of uh, COVID-19. You know, we've seen a lot of reports in the last few days about, um, you know, surging cases of coronavirus and the plans to come back and safety protocols and what it's been like. And I was hoping you could take us through um, your journey back from the United States to Europe all the way through to the to the beginning races in Spain this past weekend from uh you know what what your life has been like in this age of coronavirus yeah it's been it's been a little bit crazy I think for for a couple months it was a lot of just ambiguity and not really knowing you know when we were going to race if we were going to race and then it became okay maybe we will race but maybe I won't be able to get to Europe so uh, it was really just checking in with my DS and our team management every single day and um, looking at if the races were happening. And then once we kind of got notification that racing was going to happen, which to me seemed insane because it keeps getting worse and worse in the U.S., whereas in Europe, they kind of had a handle on it, although I think they're headed into the second wave. So I think things are still going to be very iffy. But once we kind of got the, the go-ahead that there was going to be races, then it was kind of trying to find my way into Europe. So there was a lot of emailing back and forth with the Spanish consulate. Cause that was where the first races of the season were in the, in the Basque region. So my team wrote a letter and eventually the Spanish embassy, um, approved my entry back into Spain. So I knew literally less than a week, um, before the races that I was coming and I was going to race. So it was a really quick turnaround. Um, and then yeah, a very eerie, creepy flight from the U S to Europe. Um, because travel right now is just, it's not fun. Please don't do it if you don't have to. Um, and yeah, then we, we, we got here and, and even the first race, it was very iffy whether it was going to continue or not because the UCI have all these protocols in place and race organizers have to abide by them, obviously, in order for the races to go on. And at first, it didn't seem like the Spanish races were as organized as we thought. Um, so all the teams wanted to, you know, check in with the race organizers and make sure that all the teams participating had had proof of negative tests. So that eventually did happen. So the races did go on. Um, but it's very different than, than it has been in the past, you know, no spectators, although there were spectators, but masks and, and no real sign-ons and you have to stand really far apart. And yeah, it's masks, even at the start line, it's, it's, it's very odd and very eerie, but also kind of beautiful to be back racing. Yeah. So Taylor, take us through 
the um what it was like to be at this first race back this at Macumin Nafar I can't spell the Classicoa the race in northern <laughs> Spain um you know just outside the Basque region we were following this um where the the teams arrived and it seemed like everyone was set to race then day of CCC Live made the decision to back out of the race saying that they were not happy with the races um, COVID protocols that, you know, they felt like not all of the teams had been tested. You know, you're at this race, I'm sure. What was it like to live through this story unfolding? And what was the conversation like between you and the other riders on your team? Yeah, to be honest, it was, it was a bit uncomfortable. I mean, especially coming from the U.S., I spent, I mean, I spent three months literally only really seeing my wife and a few friends from a distance. And then all of a sudden, like we hadn't gone out to restaurants, we hadn't been anywhere around people. And then suddenly you're at a bike race and you're in a hotel um, with other teams and around a lot of people. And yeah, it was very, that part of it was overwhelming. And then it's also overwhelming to be like, very unsure if you're going to race or not even up to a few hours just before the race. So, I mean, our team was on top of things uh, in terms of being in touch with the race organizer and trying to see kind of the situation. Cause I think it's very important right now that teams give the race organization a chance to make things right. And I think our team, you know, you know, was talking to the race organization, making sure that all of the teams that were going to race could prove that they had a negative test within three days. Cause that's the UCI rule. You have to have a test within six days and then again within three days. And, um, a lot of the hotel protocols, weren't necessarily being followed, but the race organizer didn't know that until we told him and then they were doing their best to make it right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I know CCC did what they thought was best and what was safest, but I think it was good that the other teams kind of gave the race organization a chance to make it right. And they ended up making it right. I think only 14 teams or so started that first day and every team that started proof at showed proof of negative tests. So, um, I felt safe in that respect. It's still a bit uncomfortable to be around so many people when you've not been for so long. And when things in the U S are still really bad, I think coming from that environment, I was just a bit more um, wary of, of people in general. So it's been an adjustment um, even just going into gas stations and stuff on the, on the drive here. It's, it's, it's very strange, but um, yeah, once we started racing, it was like, you know, nice everything back to normal except for standing on the start line and in masks is a bit strange yeah taylor i was curious about that i mean given given everything that you've told us so far about how bizarre it is from traveling over there to being on the ground and then having various teams not be able to start and then all of a sudden you're still supposed to race your bike so are you able to separate this like insane backdrop once you get to the start line or, or at what point are you able to get in the zone, I guess, um, and, and try and like filter out some of this background or are you not? I mean, is this a new, a new type of racing that is, is characterized by this? Yeah. I have to admit that the, the first race I did have a lot of anxiety just about, everything that's going on and the, the fact that we were um, bike racing in this COVID world. But I think the great thing about teammates and, and being a team is we all kind of 
realized that everybody was feeling that anxiety and we rallied around each other and you know on the bus before the race you turn up the music and you and you dance around and you kind of get pumped up like you would pre-covid times and you kind of forget <laughs> a little bit and and that that can be nice too so i think the teammates surrounding surrounding each other i think we help each other kind of get over that anxiety Take us inside those first few hours of racing in that first race back. Were uh, people nervous? Did it feel any differently than a race before COVID or was it business as usual? Yeah, I think there was definitely a lot of nerves because people are nervous because of COVID. People are also nervous because this is probably the longest, it's the longest I've ever gone in the last 10 years without racing my bike. So it's, it's like it's longer than an off season. So you don't really know where your form is and everybody's trained differently. Everybody has had handled COVID differently, you know, mentally because it's, I mean, I think it's been very tough on everybody. Uh, so I think there was a bit of nerves in that way, but once you start racing, you kind of, it's yeah, like they say, riding a bike and, and everything kind of goes back to normal and you, you get in the flow of the Peloton and, and you, starts suffering and yeah that's really all you can think about after that like you said everyone had sort of come from really really different experiences over the past five months or so and depending on where um on the globe you were you were either riding outside or riding inside for a huge chunk of that time um when you and i talked in mid-june um I think I asked you about e-racing or Zwift and you were like, mm, yeah, no, <laughs> not my jam. Um, and then you, and then you have other women in the Peloton who became prolific, um, on the platform. <laughs> I'm wondering if, if that was clear, um, where, where riders had been for the past few months, once you guys started to race was, were there any great disparities in, um, who had come from where, um, or did it seem like everyone was, was strong and, and raring to go? Yeah, I think it was a little bit all over the place. Um, it was, I have to admit a little refreshing to see that some of the people that were flying on Zwift were not flying in real life. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think virtual racing is a very, is a perfect, um, replication of what racing is like. I know it's great for some people, but yeah, like I said, it's just not my thing. Um, I much rather be outside, but I think, yeah, everybody was different. I mean, I have, even just within our team, um, everybody was kind of in a different place, um, with where they were, but you know, Elisa Longo-Bergini was in a full on lockdown in Italy for, I think more than eight weeks. And, uh, obviously riding the trainer worked for her cause she's flying right now. So, um, yeah, everybody's kind of in a different place, but, um, I think everybody's just so excited to be racing that their form, they don't really care about their form as much. You know, we were able to see the results of these races, which is that Annemiek van Vluten had uh, scored breakaway victories in all three of them. We didn't get to see anything, though, of what happened beforehand because, uh, you know, there were some clips here and there on Twitter, but no uh, television in the States. You know, wh what did we miss? What was going on before sort of the turn of events in these races? Who was controlling the pace? Which teams were looking strong? Which teams were sort of more inclined to sit in? Yeah, it was really exciting racing. So it's kind of, it's a bummer that there there isn't better coverage. But um, yeah, I think on the first day, it was a lot of really big climbs. And um so it was, it was more kind of a, a slow selection overall. I think there was six or seven, um, long climbs 
and then Anamika attacked on the on the last hard one. And then the second day was more of kind of a classics course, whereas short punchy hills. Um, and that was a really exciting race. I, w- I didn't actually race, but my teammates did. And I heard it was just animated the whole time. And then Aliza made the, the race winning move and was solo for a while before Anamik um, joined her eventually. And then uh, unfortunately, Anamik got away on the last climb, but I think it was extremely exciting with the two of them kind of battling it out. And then even the battle for up to fifth place in that race was really exciting. And then the last day, um, uh, Durango, Durango, we did these really fast town circuits. It's a 20k lap that we do five times, and there's a climb in it, but it was a, it was kind of tailwind, really fast, so nothing was really getting away. We were we were being aggressive, our team um, and a few other teams, but it was just a bit too fast. And then you do two consecutive kind of five six k climbs, and the first one's not as hard. Uh, I attacked at the bottom and then blew up spectacularly. And then I think there was a, another series of attacks. And then the second of the two climbs is really steep. And Anamik went from the bottom and nobody could follow her. And it sounds like the girls from first to fifth all just kind of rode their own pace and then finished kind of solo because it was, it was that hard of a climb. And then you just descended to the finish. So would have been an end. There was a lot of spectators on that climb, which was kind of cool to see. Weird in the COVID world because they're all close together and like screaming in your face, but also kind of nice to have that many spectators um as in the basket region they really love cycling so it's it's always really fun to race there so uh, the, the the other big question i have for you is okay anamik has these three solo breakaways she's obviously on very good form um when you think about the way she's riding right now what are like how can teams go about trying to defend against her how do you beat anamik van vluten when she's um at this level I think it's about, yeah, If you, the more aggressive you can be and try to get up the road, um, the better. I think a lot of teams make the mistake of already racing for second place. I think they need to think more about getting up the road and being up the road. And even in a climbing stage, if you're not a climber, if you're up the road, when the climbers get to you, you can help your teammates. So um, that's the tactic that should be happening is, is more breakaways going and, and just more, cause she can't chase down everything. So eventually if you get a break, getting in a breakaway with Amanda Spratt actually would be the best scenario. Cause then enemy can't chase it. I'm going to flip a little bit back to racing in the time of COVID again, I guess, just because you are now in Italy, right? Like you arrived not very long ago. Um, And I'm wondering if you have, um, you know, crossing a border, if you've noticed any differences, if you've heard anything about Saturday's racing and protocol and, um, you know, when your next um, test is, things like that. If if anything feels different or the same or um, maybe improved upon from being in Spain last week. Yeah, I think it's actually Italy has a really good handle on the virus right now. I think the region we were in in Navarra has gotten bad, I think, because of some younger people partying or going to Ibiza and then coming back. Um, I think that was why some of the numbers had jumped in that region specifically and it had become a red zone again. But I think um, Italy is in a pretty good place. And I also believe since it's a world tour race, it's going to be incredibly um, organized and the protocols are, are going to be you know, really well followed. We all have to get tested tomorrow um, to make sure that you have the results before the race. 
so yeah, we all drive. I think we have to drive 45 minutes or so away to get a, get another brain tickle test, but happy, happy to do it if that's going to keep us all safe. And, um, yeah, I think, I think there's no question that this race is going to go forward, but yeah, still have to take everything day by day right now because anything can really happen. Yeah. I mean, the big question is, do you feel safe? I mean, I think that's something that, uh, people online and people back here in the States where, you know, the situation maybe is a little different than it is in Europe, but keep asking everyone is like, you know, if you are participating in professional sports right now, do you feel safe? Do you feel it's safe to be back racing? Oof, to be honest, I, it's difficult. I think there's a very, it's a, it's a balance between needing life to continue and, and needing life to stop and, and take a pause for a while and, and get things under control. Um, I do feel safer in Europe than I did in America because things they've been through it and they've put in place the measures and you can get tested and it's kind of, I just feel in America it's different in every state, right? It's like a different country in every state. Whereas in Europe, I think, I mean, every country is different, but they've all, they've all been through it and they, they know, you know, how to test and how to trace, which I just don't believe is happening in America. I can't say I feel a hundred percent safe and it's, it's just a scary world that we're living in right now. And it is, it's a little uncomfortable to be in hotels and to be traveling and going in bathrooms and going in airplanes and, and all that. But I am grateful to be on the team that I'm on because we have, we have protocols and we have team doctors and they're doing every single little thing they can possible to help keep us safe and, um, make sure that we're comfortable and, and they would ne- never make us do anything that we're uncomfortable with. So I, I am grateful for that, but it is, it is still a, it's a, it's a scary world cause it's a, it's a scary virus and nobody really knows, um, when we're going to have a vaccine and when things are going to go back to normal. So it's, it's not comfortable, but, um, yeah, I'm in a good, I'm in a good situation with my team. So that's, that's nice. Yeah. I mean, like you said, like what we've learned this year, if anything, is just that nothing is certain, right? And every day can deliver um, new news. Um, But it does sound like that you're feeling confident um, headed into Saturday, which is really exciting. Hopefully um, there's a little less COVID nerves um, at that start line. But tell me about like your feelings about Strata. Are you excited? Is this a race you like? Is this a is this a course you like? Um, yeah. How are you feeling about racing Saturday? Yeah, I love this race. It's definitely one of my favorite races of the year and, um, really looking forward to it. And I think, uh, I mean, I have a few teammates that I think could, could really actually win the race. So I, it's going to be really exciting to go for that and to, to, to help them kind of, yeah, get there. So I am exciting, uh, excited. My form might not be where it was when I was headed to Strata in March, but it doesn't make me any less, you know, excited to race my bike. And, um, yeah, I think it'll be, it'll be an exciting race. It always is. And yeah, it's going to be interesting. Well, Taylor Wells, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We're going to watch you this weekend at Strata Bianca. We wish you and your teammates the best of luck, and we wish you the best of health. Um, let's definitely stay in touch over the next couple months. I think all of us here back in the States with, you know, are, are wishing good luck and good health to everyone racing in Europe. Um, we're going to keep monitoring the situation. So Taylor Wiles is a guest on this week's episode of the Velo News Podcast. Tune in next week for more talk about the Tour de France, some wrap-ups from Strata Bianca. We will catch up a week from now. 